Today we continue our series in Nehemiah and we get to a portion of the story in which, the, in which Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem begin experiencing opposition. All right, so we're going to jump in here with Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 1. So read along with me as I read. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, as we open up your word today and as we look at what it says, our goal is to understand your word, but then also understand how it applies to our lives. So, Father, would you help us do that through the help of your Holy Spirit? Father, would your word be clear to us? Father, would we draw closer to you as a result of being in your word today? Father, we wish we could be together in this room, but as we're apart in homes, we still know that we are bound together by the common bond of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived, the death he died, the resurrection that gave us victory Father, we look forward to being able to search out your scriptures today and see how we can draw closer to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was uh, growing up, my brothers and uh, my family and I collected Roy Rogers movies. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Roy Rogers movie or not, but it's about an hour long. Uh, It's a Western. Uh, I don't remember. It was back in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhere in there that, that these movies were made. And I have no idea how many Roy Rogers movies were made. But my brothers and I had a goal of collecting as many as we could. And I still have no idea how many VHSs we have, but it's a bunch of them. Now, in every single Roy Rogers movie, 
you have the same three things, okay? Um, you have got uh, some kind of gunfight or fist fight. Most of the time there's more than one because it can't be a good Western unless there's a gunfight or a fist fight, right? Um, you also have a girl who is in need of help. There's always a girl in need of a help. And uh, there is bad guys who are trying to disrupt the plans of the good guys. Now, Roy Rogers and his horse Trigger would come galloping in with whatever sidekick uh, was, was playing in this movie. Sometimes it was Gabby Hayes, uh, sometimes it was Smiley, others. Um, but they would come galloping in at the last second and they would save the day. And most of the time, there was not a moment to lose because if any more time had expired, somebody would have fallen off a cliff or they would have been um, in a massive explosion or something like that, okay? Um, I loved Roy Rogers movies growing up. And even now, I can tell you what my favorites were. Ask me sometime when you see me and I'll tell you, okay? Um, but anyway, if, if uh, the story of Nehemiah was cast in a Roy Rogers movie then Sanballat and Tobiah would be the bad guys in this movie, all right? They are the arch enemies of Nehemiah and the people that are working on the wall there at Jerusalem. They do nothing but bring opposition. They bring disruption. They bring obstacles to the work that Nehemiah is doing. First time we find them was in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. Nehemiah has just gotten in Jerusalem. And here's what we find. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, then you jump down to verse 18, and here's what the people are saying. They're ready to go. They say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Folks, before the people even began the work, Sanballat and Tobiah are already trying to sabotage what God is doing. Now, I think there's several motivations for that, and, and we can speculate. We're not told exactly what those motivations would be for Sanballat being the disruption that he is. But as I think about it, there's a couple of them that come to mind. First of all, I think that there was political motivations here. Um, Sanballat is the leader of Samaria, which is the region that is closest to Judea, right there where Jerusalem is at. All right. Um, as soon as Nehemiah comes on the scene there at Jerusalem, just like that, there is a political threat to Sanballat. And I believe that he was feeling that threat, and he was wrestling against that threat. He was wrestling for, for dominance in this region. But it's not just political motivation that would have been driving Sanballat. I also believe that there is a uh, financial motivation. The nation of Israel is a commercial hub. There is everything from farming to fishing to importing and exporting of goods. It's a very rich, very, um, very, very fertile land. Money would be flowing in and out. People would come to trade in the regions right there around Jerusalem. And for the first time in many, 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 many years, Jerusalem, it looks like, is going to be a city once again. It's going to be a hub for people to come to and trade and to, to um, make a living in. Well, Sanballat will be looking at this as a member of the tribe of, or the region of Samaria, and he's thinking, they're going to take some money out of my pocket. They are going to take some of the commerce away from me. So part of the motivation that Sanballat may have had for this is, is financial. He's going to lose money because of what's taking place here with Nehemiah and the people rebuilding the walls. 
Now, there's many other motivations that Sanballat may have had, and we can speculate about what those are, but that's two of them that I can think of right away where Sanballat's going, I want to do everything I can to make sure that they, that they don't go through with building these walls. There's probably many other motivations. But let's go back to chapter 4 and see what Sanballat has to say. It's chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he, I love this word, okay, and he jeered at the Jews. I mean, the word jeer means to make rude or mo- uh, mocking remarks, okay? Typically, you do that in a very loud voice. So you're, you're making these remarks in a very loud voice. You're yelling them out, okay? Um, and in verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, in other words, he's speaking out loud, he's yelling out loud, and he makes five accusations, All right, I'm going to read these to you. Number one, what are these feeble Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? He's accusing them of being weak, okay, not strong. They're they're not able to to physically build the walls, not able to physically do the work. That's what he is accusing um, the Jews of in in this first accusation. So the first one, what are those feeble Jews doing? Secondly, will they restore it for themselves? He's accusing them here of being self centered and selfish as if they're only in it for the gain that they can get out of rebuilding the walls. Now, we know, because we know the backstory, that they had a higher purpose, that God had placed this burden on the heart of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah followed through with that burden, that he, that he, he, he challenged the people to rise to the occasion, and that they are building because God has called them to build. But Sanballat is saying, no, you're only doing this for selfish reasons. All right, here's the third accusation. Will they sacrifice, he says? This statement shows off Sanballat's ignorance of God. The answer is yes, they're going to offer sacrifices of of thanksgiving. They're going to offer sacrifices of worship to God. But that's a foreign concept to Sanballat. It's unfathomable that the Jews would do all of this work on this wall for the sake of their God. Yet here they are doing just that. Here's the next one. Will they finish up in a day? And you can imagine him saying that with a mocking voice. Are they going to finish this thing up in a day? Here, Sam Ballot is saying that the Jews have no idea what they have gotten themselves into, that this job is much, much bigger than anything that they could have ever imagined taking on. He's making fun of them, saying that in their state of ignorance, they think it's going to be a joyride. They think this is going to be an easy undertaking for them to build these walls. And then here's the fifth accusation. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And here Nehemiah says that the Jews don't have any knowledge about what it is that they're doing. They're going to go and reuse these old stones that are weak, he's saying. Five accusations. Weakness, selfish motive, sacrificial dependence that is crazy, stupidity, and ignorance. Now, do those accusations have a hint of truth to them? Absolutely they do. I would say that Sam Ballot in many ways is right in what he's saying. These people in Jerusalem are weak, okay? There's there's probably not that many of them. They wouldn't have been builders by trade, right? They wouldn't have strengthened their muscles for it. So yes, they are weak. They do have a motive that is unknown and it is foreign to Sam Ballot. They're filled with sacrificial dependence on God, saying, God, we are pouring ourselves out there for you um, to do what you're asking us to do. Okay, and that doesn't make sense to Sanballat. 
They can be viewed, these people can be viewed by human standards as stupid and ignorant. They are, in fact, using perfumers and goldsmiths and women to build this wall. Who does that? That is absolutely ridiculous, right? So when Sanballat is looking on this, he's going, this is absolutely crazy. And there's a hint of truth to what he's saying, that yes, it is crazy. But folks, can I tell you that when God is using people to do something extraordinary, there is no better place to be than in total and complete surrender to him. Knowing that there's a hint of truth to what other people are accusing of us, us of and, and the ridicule that they're giving us, but resting in the fact that you're a part of something that's much bigger than you are. You're a part of what God is doing in this world. That's what these people are a part of. And yes, they're weak. Yes, they don't know what they're doing. And yes, they are pouring themselves out there as sacrificial dependence on God. Something that doesn't make sense to Sanballat. But that's where God shows up and that's where God starts blessing. When we are in total and complete surrender and dependence to him. So that's the accusations of Sanballat, five of them. But then there's Tobiah, okay? And, and he's like this bumbling sidekick of the bad guy in the Roy Rogers movie, right? He kind of comes along and, and, and he pipes up with a statement of his own. He says, uh, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Um, this is kind of like the guy who's trying to one-up what was just said. And I can imagine Sanballat looking over at Tobiah like, are you serious right now? You couldn't do any better than that with your ridicule? But folks, after this ridicule and after this disruption, Nehemiah knows exactly what to do. He takes it straight to God in prayer. And he gives us one of those examples of how a person who is close to the heart of God handles adversity. And here's what he says in verse 4. Hear, O our God. Listen to me, O our God. Listen to what's going on, O God. For we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Folks, Nehemiah asked for righteous judgment to be carried out on these men because they are getting in the way of the work of God. Folks, there will be people, always, who get in the, war, in the way of the work of God. Conflict and adversity, disruption, opposition, all of that is inevitable when God is at work. It's going to come at some point when you are doing what God has asked you to do. It would be easy in that moment to say, but God, listen, I'm doing what you asked me to do. I'm, I'm doing your work. I'm following what you've called me to do. So why is this happening? It'd be easy for us to ask that. But here's a statement that I want you to hold on to, and it's going to be right there on your screen, okay? I want you to hold on to this. God permits in his wisdom what he could prevent with his power. God permits in his wisdom what he could prevent with his power. In other words, God sees the bigger picture. And in his wisdom and in his knowledge, he allows some things to happen for his glory and so that his plan can be carried out. And yeah, sometimes we are in the middle of whatever it is that God has called us to do, and there's disruption, there's controversy, there's, there's, there's this, this ridicule that can come. But you know what? That's a part of God's plan, because he sharpens us 
And he pulls us in closer to him in the middle of those difficult times. Now let's think for a moment here about the times that we're living in just right now. Some of you are or have been heavily involved in, in ministry of some kind, doing very, very good things for the Lord, things that God has called you to do. Ready to be used, you are ready to be used by Him. And suddenly your plans are disrupted. Suddenly there's, there's something that comes along that it's almost like it puts a roadblock in front of you. And folks, it's not always ridicule from guys like Sanballat and Tobiah that, that distracts us. Sometimes it's disease like cancer or COVID-19. Sometimes it's the loss of a job or a relationship that disrupts the good work that you are doing for the Lord. But when those times come along, how are you going to respond? And I can tell you how Nehemiah responded. He, he, he took it straight to the Lord and he said, God, you got to take this. You got to deal with this because I can't. It's exactly how Nehemiah responded. Church, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm frustrated that the coronavirus has disrupted the ministry of this, not only this church, but the church all over the world. Um, but I'm convinced, I'm convinced that God permits in his wisdom what he could prevent with his power. Meaning this, that, that God's wisdom far exceeds my wisdom. And God's wisdom and knowledge far exceeds anything that we can expect. Which means that God must have a plan that he is working out for his glory and for our good. Therefore, I am choosing to trust him with the details. There was a whole lot of things that I expected out of 2020, um, and us not being together in this way for weeks on end was not one of them. But I trust God when he permits in his wisdom what he could prevent with his power. I love what Nehemiah does after praying. He, he doesn't let all of this get to him. He doesn't go in a corner and mope. Verse 6 says, so we built the wall. I love it. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together, which means all the way around the city, it was all joined together, and it up, is up to half its height. So they're halfway there. For the people had a mind to work. See, Nehemiah just got back to work. There's disruption. There's this confusion. There's this opposition. There's this ridicule that comes up. But he just got back to work. Right? It wasn't long, and, and half the wall is complete. We read there, the people had a mind to work. Isn't that cool to think about? Last week, we talked about how all these ordinary people are coming together to work and complete this job that God had given them. And we can just picture them now joining together to do the work. They're halfway done. They're halfway home. Now, most of the time, we get to the halfway point on a project that we're working on, and we say, you know what? It's great. The hard part's over. It's all downhill from here. But these people are not able to say that. More opposition, more disruption, more discouragement starts to come up. Verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And then we find, as we continue reading, discouragement starts to hit from three different fronts. Let's continue reading verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Folks, there's three groups of people there that come and they, they speak some sort of opposition, some sort of disruption into this. There's the people who are actually doing the work. They're tired. There's the people who um, are on the outside, the enemies, right? They're going to come kill you. And then there's people who are friends from outside the city saying, come on, this is too dangerous. Come with us. Come back home. Just quit this. There's three different, three different things that, that are found in this verses that will cause discouragement. There's three of them. One, loss of strength. Two, loss of vision. And then three, a loss of courage. Those three things cause discouragement. Let's talk about that loss of strength for a minute. These people are tired. They've been working on this for at least, it's likely, at least three weeks at this point. You can imagine from the time the sun comes up to the time the sun goes down, they're working. Their physical bodies are spent. And when our bodies are tired, it's going to have a drastic effect on our emotional and mental health. For these people, they're looking at the rubble that's laying all around them on the ground, and, and you don't see them talking about the work that's been completed. You see them talking about their limitations. We are failing, they're saying. The job is too big. We can't do this by ourselves. Loss of strength will bring about discouragement. There's also, we see here, loss of vision. Not once in these verses do you hear these people talking about the goal, right? You don't hear them talking about the ways that God has worked so far, you don't hear the people talking about how beautiful the city is going to be once it's done or how much glory God's going to get once this job is done. Folks, when we take our eyes off the vision, discouragement will set in. In life, the times that I am the most discouraged is when I have the least clear picture of things to come. But when my eyes are on the prize and when I think with eternity in mind, or if I think even with five years ahead in mind, that's when it's hard to be discouraged because I see hope for the future. But then we see that discouragement is also brought on by loss of courage. I'm going to read verse 11 for us, 11 and 12. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that same time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Folks, there's the, there's the very real threat of the people dying Right? That's a very, very real threat there. Their enemies are plotting their death. On top of that, their friends are coming from outside the city to them, and they're saying, this is all too dangerous. The work is too hard. Just come stay with us for a while. And you can imagine the people's courage is starting to wane. So what does Nehemiah do? In the face of this discouragement, what does he, bring, what does he do to, to bring them back on track? He puts a strategic plan in place, and he calls them back to the faithfulness of God. He puts a strategic plan in place, and he calls them back to the faithfulness of God. Now, we're actually going to come back to this passage next week because there's a whole lot more that we have to pull out of all of this, okay? Um, and we're going to look specifically next week at how Satan attempts to disrupt God's plans. But I want for us to jump down to verse 14. I want to see how Nehemiah calls the people back to a right perspective. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them, 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In other words, remember the Lord and his faithfulness. Don't forget the greatness of God. Take courage, take strength, remember the vision. As we continue reading, we see that they poured themselves into finishing the wall. Folks, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God is doing a work in you that he is able to and faithful to finish. You can trust him. And all that he's asking of you is that you remain faithful, plugging along, keep going, even in the middle of difficult times. We, know, we all know that Thomas Edison was the creator of the light bulb, and we know that he tried for years, and, and many, many, many times he tried to create the light bulb and failed, but he kept going, he kept plugging at it. Well, a lot of people don't know that Thomas Edison also created many other things, many other items he invented for really into his entire life. His son Charles once wrote a short biography about his dad, and here's what he, part of what he had to say in that biography. Charles Edison says, I especially recall a freezing December night in 1914 at a time when, stu- when still unfruitful experiments on the nickel, iron, alkaline storage battery, to which father had devoted much of 10 years, had put him on a financial tightrope. Only profits from movie and record production were supporting the laboratory. On that December evening, the cry of fire echoed through the plant. Spontaneous combustion had broken out in the film room. Within moments, all the packing compounds, solenoid for records, film, and other flammable goods, had gone up with a whoosh. Fire companies from eight towns arrived, but the heat was so intense and the water pressure so low that the fire fire hoses had no effect. When I couldn't find father, I became concerned. Was he safe? With all his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? He was 67, no age to begin anew. Then I saw him in the plant yard running toward me. Where's mom? He shouted. Go get her. Tell her to get her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. At 5.30 the next morning, with the fire barely under control, he called his employees together and announced, we're rebuilding One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area, another to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company. Then, almost as an afterthought, he added, oh, by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? Later on, he explained, you can always make capital out of disaster. We've just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger and better on the ruins. With that, he rolled up his coat for a pillow, crawled up on a table, and immediately fell asleep. You talk about optimism in the middle of adversity, right? Folks, can I tell you that as followers of Jesus, we have more reason for optimism in the middle of adversity than even Thomas Edison. We have been given abundant life through the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We have been restored to relationship with God through our repentance and the forgiveness of our sins that God has offered to us. What can this life give us that can overcome the reality and the blessing of everything that we've been given? All I would say is a word of challenge here as we wrap up. 
It's kind of centered on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he tells them that because of the victory that's found in Jesus, because of the life that we've been given in Jesus, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love that. It's a reminder from Paul to say, hey, remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Do what you know to be right. When that difficult time comes up, you stick it out. You persevere. Not because there's anything inside of us that is strong enough, but because we know that our God will never, ever, ever cease to be faithful to us. Some of you may be watching this morning and you're going through a difficult time. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you are facing financial difficulties. Some of you are facing sickness and you're wondering how you're going to get to the doctor for that sickness. Some of you are facing going crazy, staying in your home because you just feel like you need to be out. Can I tell you to persevere in all things because our God is faithful to hold us up, to carry us through, to walk with us through anything that life may bring us. And that he's got a plan that is good. And even though it may not seem good in the moment, our God will never, ever fail. And we can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, Nehemiah is just doing what you've asked him to do. And yet all of a sudden there's this opposition that comes up, this ridicule, this discouragement that starts to set in. Father, may we be like Nehemiah. That when in our lives opposition and ridicule, discouragement starts to set in, that, Father, we remember the faithfulness of our God. That we go back to the fact that you have a plan for us that is good. That you have never, ever left us and you've never, ever forsaken us. That you've never let us down. And that even though we can't always understand what your hand is doing, we know we can trust your heart. Father, remind us often that you permit in your wisdom what you could prevent with your power. You are a powerful God, but you are also an all-knowing God. Father, help us to trust you in all things. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for watching with us this morning. And if you would like to know more about what a personal relationship with Jesus looks like, or if you want to know more about what we've talked about or sung about this morning, now, I want to encourage you to email us at info at .org, or you can go to our website and you can find out more information about how to contact us. We would love to walk with you through any questions that you may have. Salem family, I love you. We miss you. We're looking forward to seeing you again. You are sent.